Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss a 10-foot giant found buried in New York, allegedly, another close call with nuclear war, and a town in Australia that was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit every day for almost six months straight. October 16, 1869. The Cardiff Giant, one of the most famous archaeological hoaxes in American history, is discovered in New York. The Cardiff Giant was a 10-foot-tall, 3,000-pound, supposedly petrified man. The Giant was the creation of a New York tobacco salesman named George Hull. He was an atheist deeply attracted to science, especially Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Hull got into an argument with the Reverend and his supporters at a Methodist revival meeting about Genesis 6-4, which states that there were giants who once lived on Earth. Being the minority opinion within the group, Hull lost the argument. Angered by their beliefs, Hull wanted to prove how easily he could fool people with a fake giant. In 1868, Hull and a man named H.B. Martin hired men to quarry out a 10-foot block of gypsum in Fort Dodge, Iowa, telling them it was intended for a monument of Abraham Lincoln in New York. He shipped the block to Edward Burghardt in Chicago, a German stonecutter who had sworn to secrecy. Burghardt hired two sculptors named Henry Sal and Fred Mormon to create the giant. They took cautious steps to cover up their work during the carving and hung quilts to muffle the sound. The giant was designed to imitate the form of Hull himself. Hull consulted a geologist and learned that hairs wouldn't be petrified, so he removed the hair and beard from the statue. The length of the giant was 10 feet, 4.5 inches, and it weighed 2,990 pounds. Various methods were used to make the stone giant appear old and weathered. Hull first wiped it down using a sponge soaked with sand and water. To simulate pores, the giant's surface was beaten with steel knitting needles embedded in a board. The giant was also rubbed with sulfuric acid to create a deeper, vintage-like color. During November of 1868, Hull transported the giant by railroad to his cousin's farm, a man named William Newell. He spent over $2,500 to create the hoax, which would be over $50,000 today. The giant was buried one night in late November in a hole in Newell's farm. Nearly a year later, Newell hired Gideon Emmons and Henry Nichols ostensibly to dig a well, and on October 16, 1869, they found the giant. One of the men reportedly exclaimed, I declare, some old Indian has been buried here. On the first day, people were able to view the giant for free. The next day, a tent was set up on the discovery site and Newell charged 50 cents for a 15-minute session to see the giant. The audience quickly grew to about 500 per day and the demand for wagons and carriages dramatically increased. Townspeople also gained huge profits due to the Cardiff giant. The hotels and restaurants in Cardiff saw more customers in just four days than they had ever seen before. Some believe the giant was a petrified man, 
while others believed it was a statue. Those who believed it was a petrified man thought it was one of the giants mentioned in the Genesis verse. On the other hand, John Boyton, the first geologist to examine the giant, declared that it could not be a fossilized man, but hypothesized that it was a statue that was carved by a French Jesuit in the 16th or 17th century in order to impress the local Native Americans. Andrew White, the first president of Cornell University, made a close inspection of the Cardiff giant. He noticed there was no good reason to dig a well in the spot the giant was discovered. He said, The whole matter was undoubtedly a hoax. There was no reason why a farmer should dig a well in the spot where the figure was found. It was not convenient to the house or the barn. There was already a good spring and a stream of water running conveniently to both, and it could not have been carved by any prehistoric race since no part of it showed the characteristics of any such early work. Yale paleontologist Othniel Marsh examined the statue and pointed out that it was made of soluble gypsum. If it had been buried in a blanket of warm earth for centuries, the statue would not still show fresh tool marks, which it did. Still, some theologians and preachers defended its authenticity. Eventually, Hall sold his part for $23,000, equivalent to almost $500,000 today, to a syndicate headed by David Hannum. They moved it for exhibition to Syracuse, New York. The giant drew such crowds that showman P.T. Barnum offered $50,000 for the statue. When the syndicate refused, he hired a man to create a plaster replica. He displayed his model in New York, claiming that his was the real giant and the Cardiff giant was a fake. On December 10, 1869, Hall confessed everything to the press, and on February 2, 1870, both giants were revealed as fakes. Hall proclaimed that he did not confess because of the pressing criticism, but confessed proudly that he intended for the hoax to be exposed to reveal the tendency of the Christian community to believe in things too easily and to counter the fundamentalist belief that giants once roamed the earth. Iowa publisher Gardner Cowles Jr. bought the statue for his basement game room as a coffee table and conversation piece. In 1947, he sold it to the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York, where it is still displayed today. P.T. Barnum's replica is displayed at Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum, a coin-operated game arcade, and a museum of oddities in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Here's my take on the Cardiff Giant. I mean, it's clearly a statue. Maybe it looked a little bit like a petrified man when it was in a hole all covered with dirt and the position of the body is kind of contorted. But maybe people just wanted to believe in giants. There have been many hoaxes about giants, and they've all caught my attention, so I'm not about to judge. The tallest man in the world was nine feet tall, and there have been quite a few over eight feet tall. So finding a fossil of a ten-foot man is within the realm of possibility. Caught of giant, let me check that. What? Caught of giant. Just check the list, Cardiff Giant. Maybe you want to try the China Club. Again with the fucking China Club. October 27th, 1962. By refusing to fire a nuclear torpedo at a U.S. warship, Vasily Arkhipov averts a nuclear war. 
Vasily Arkhipov was a Soviet naval officer credited with preventing a Soviet nuclear torpedo launch during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Such an attack would have likely caused a major nuclear response throughout the world. As Chief of Staff and Second-in-Command of the diesel-powered submarine B-59, Arkhipov refused to authorize the captain and the political officer's use of nuclear torpedoes against the United States Navy, a decision which required the agreement of all three officers. Arkhipov was born into a peasant family in a small town near Moscow. He was educated in the Pacific Higher Naval School and participated in the Soviet-Japanese War in August of 1945 serving aboard a minesweeper. He transferred to the Caspian Higher Naval School and graduated in 1947. After graduating, Arkhipov served in the submarine service aboard boats in the Black Sea, Northern, and Baltic fleets. In July of 1961, Arkhipov was appointed deputy commander and therefore executive officer of the new hotel-class ballistic missile submarine K-19. After a few days of conducting exercises off the southeast coast of Greenland, the submarine developed an extreme leak in its reactor coolant system. This leak led to a failure of the cooling system. Radio communications were also affected, and the crew was unable to make contact with Moscow. With no backup systems, Captain Nikolai Zatiev ordered the seven members of the engineer crew to come up with a solution to avoid a nuclear meltdown. This required the men to work in high radiation levels for extended periods. They eventually came up with a secondary coolant system and were able to prevent a reactor meltdown. Although they were able to save themselves from a nuclear meltdown, the entire crew, including Arkhipov, were exposed to radiation. All members of the engineering crew and their divisional officer died within a month due to being exposed to high levels of radiation. Over the course of two years, 15 more sailors died from the after-effects, bringing the total number of deaths to 22. The incident was the basis for a 2002 film starring Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson called K-19, The Widowmaker. The character portrayed by Liam Neeson was closely based on Arkhipov. The nickname, The Widowmaker, was only used in the film. In real life, the submarine received the nickname Hiroshima after the incident on July 3, 1961. On October 27, 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a group of 11 United States Navy destroyers and the aircraft carrier USS Randolph located the diesel-powered, nuclear-armed Foxtrot-class submarine B-59 near Cuba. The B-59 was one of four Foxtrot submarines sent by the USSR to the area. Despite being in international waters, the United States Navy started dropping signaling depth charges intended to force the submarine to come to the surface for identification. At the time, there had been no contact from Moscow for a number of days, and although the B-59's crew had been picking up U.S. civilian radio broadcasts earlier, the submarine was too deep to monitor any radio traffic, as it was busy trying to hide from the Americans. Those on board did not know whether war had broken out or not. The captain of the submarine, Valentin Savitsky, decided that a war might have started and wanted to launch a nuclear torpedo. Typically, Soviet submarines armed with nuclear torpedoes only required the captain and the political officer to authorize a nuclear launch. But unlike the other submarines in the fleet, all three officers on board the B-59 had to agree in order to authorize the launch. This was due to Arkhipov's position as chief of staff of the fleet. 
Before launching the nuclear torpedo, Captain Savitsky was also required to get Arkhipov's approval. The officers who needed to agree to the nuclear strike were Captain Savitsky, political officer Ivan Maslenikov, and executive officer Arkhipov. An argument broke out between the three of them, with Arkhipov being the only one against the launch. Although Arkhipov was only second in command of the B-59, he was the chief of staff of the entire submarine fleet, which included the B-4, the B-36, and the B-130. According to author Edward Wilson, the reputation Arkhipov gained from his courageous conduct in the previous year's K-19 incident played a large role in the decision to launch a torpedo. Arkhipov eventually persuaded Savitsky to surface and await orders from Moscow. His persuasion effectively averted a nuclear war, which would have likely ensued if the nuclear weapon had been fired. The B-59's batteries ran very low and its air conditioning failed, which caused extreme heat and generated high levels of carbon dioxide inside the submarine. They were forced to surface while being pursued by the Americans and had to return to the Soviet Union as a result. After surfacing, Arkhipov's submarine was fired on by American aircraft. He said, The plane, one to three seconds before firing, turned on powerful searchlights and blinded the people on the bridge. When the commander blinked his eyes and could see again, it became clear that the plane was firing past and beside the boat. The following similar actions, 12 overflights altogether, were not as worrisome any longer. Immediately upon returning to Russia, many crew members were faced with disgrace from their superiors. One admiral told them, it would have been better if you'd gone down with your ship. Olga, Arkhipov's wife, said that he didn't like talking about it. He felt they hadn't appreciated what they had gone through. Each captain was required to present a report to Marshal Andrei Grechko, who substituted for the sixth Soviet defense minister. Grechko was infuriated with the crew's failure to follow the strict orders of secrecy after finding out they had been discovered by the Americans. One officer even noted Grechko's reaction, stating that upon learning that it was the diesel submarines that went to Cuba, he removed his glasses and hit them hard against the table in a fury, breaking them into small pieces and abruptly leaving the room. Arkhipov continued serving in the Soviet Navy, commanding submarines and submarine squadrons. He was promoted to Rear Admiral in 1975 and became head of the Kurov Naval Academy. He was promoted to Vice Admiral in 1981 and retired in the mid-80s. Arkhipov settled in Kapovna, where he died on August 19, 1988. The radiation to which Arkhipov had been exposed in 1961 may have contributed to his kidney cancer, like many others who served with him during the K-19 accident. In 2002, retired commander Vadim Orlov, a participant in the events, held a press conference revealing the submarines were armed with nuclear torpedoes and that Arkhipov was the reason those weapons had not been fired. Robert McNamara, U.S. Secretary of Defense at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, stated in 2002 that we came very, very close to nuclear war, closer than we knew at the time. Arthur Schlesinger Jr., an advisor to the JFK administration, continued this thought by stating, This was not only the most dangerous moment of the Cold War, it was the most dangerous moment in human history. Here's my take on Vasily Arkhipov. The most badass guys on Earth stay calm in dangerous situations.
and it's hard to come up with many situations that are more frightening than engaging in nuclear war. His wife described him as intelligent, polite, and very calm. He was also a total badass. Liam Neeson played him in a movie. That sums it up right there. You were lucky, Captain. This time. October 31st, 1923. The first day of 160 consecutive days of 100 degree Fahrenheit temperatures in Marble Bar, Western Australia. Marble Bar is a town and rock formation in the Polbara region of Western Australia. It's extremely hot climate with the mean maximum temperature second only to Wyndham, Western Australia, has resulted in the town being well known for its hot weather. The town was officially established in 1893 following the discovery of gold in the area in 1890 by a prospector named Francis Jenkins, who is remembered by the name of the town's main street. The name Marble Bar was derived from a nearby Jasper Bar mistaken for marble, which runs across the bed of the Coongan River. In 1891, the town boasted a population in excess of 5,000 as it experienced a rush on the gold fields. Several large gold nuggets were discovered as a result of the gold rush. The 333-ounce Little Hero Nugget, the 413-ounce Bobby Dazzler, and the 332-ounce General Gordon Nugget were all found in the gold fields around the town. By 1895, the town had its government offices built. Cut from local stone, they still stand today as National Trust buildings. The town's ironclad hotel was built in the 1890s. It is constructed of corrugated iron and was given its name by the American miners who were reminded of the ironclad ships from the United States. During World War II, United States Army Air Forces and Royal Australian Air Force heavy bombers were based about 16 miles away at Corona Downs Airfield. Allied airmen from the base attacked Japanese forces as far away as Borneo. The Port Headland to Marble Bar Railway opened on July 15, 1911. Due to low traffic and heavy financial losses, the railway closed 40 years later, on May 31, 1951. The railway could be seen as a precursor to the network of iron ore railways that have since been created across parts of Western Australia. Marble Bar has a hot desert climate with sweltering summers and warm winters. Most of the annual rainfall occurs in the summer. The town set a record of most consecutive days of 100 degrees Fahrenheit or above during a period of 160 days from October 31, 1923 to April 7, 1924. Although annual temperatures indicate Marble Bar should be within the tropics, it does not have the high precipitation requirements for hot weather climates to sustain tropical vegetation. Less than three inches of rainfall a year is common. During December and January, temperatures in excess of 115 degrees are also common and the average maximum temperature exceeds normal human body temperature for six months of each year. 
Even in the middle of winter, bursts of heat can result in the temperature rising to almost 100 degrees for a few days before dropping back to normal. The current population is under 1,000 people, with the majority being Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Here's my take on Marble Bar, Australia. It doesn't sound great. I like the desert, but goddamn, that's a bit much. Despite the heat, it's a somewhat popular tourist location. And with all the global warming going on, how has that record not been broken in the last hundred years? Come on. That's going to do it for today. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And I will see you next time.